Well, it's great to be back here at 1111. This summer, this summer I did some foreign missionary work. I've been at our West Campus uh, the last six weeks. If you're wondering, uh, is Ben in Bora Bora or Tahiti? No, he's in Katy. So, but it's great. It's great to be back here at 1111. Um, years ago, Benjamin Franklin said there are only two certainties in life two certainties, death and taxes. And he was absolutely correct, though I don't think that Franklin envisioned that taxes would actually kill us, but he was right about that. Death and taxes, those, those are two certainties in life. And, you know, I saw a, a poll recently, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC poll that revealed this interesting fact that one out of one Americans will eventually die. That is the fact, Jack. We are all going to die. And when, and when you die, after you die, someone's gonna stand up, maybe in a church like this, perhaps at a funeral home or a gathering, and they're gonna talk about you. They're gonna talk about what you were like. They're gonna talk about your interests. They're gonna tell stories about you, funny stories, serious stories, but they're gonna talk about you in a way that describes what you invested your life in, what mattered the most to you. Basically, they're gonna stand up and testify about your testimony if you have one. So what are they gonna say? about you and about what you cared about and how you lived your life. A few weeks ago, I had Sunday lunch with some members of our church and afterwards, I was walking outside and, and we were going to the parking lot and a friend of mine, this really intense guy, you know those people have these really intense personalities? Maybe you're one of them. <laughs> if you are, you probably don't know that, but they're people with really intense personalities, where they're always intense. They're just always, they're always lit, right? They're just, you know, like that. So we're walking out. This guy's a great guy, you know, and he goes, hey, I wanna tell you something. I said, okay, what is it? He goes, do you, do you, know, do you know that your dad is a great communicator? And he's talking about my father, Dr. Young, Ed Young, in case you just joined us. And I said, yeah, I do. He, he said, Great communicator. He goes, no, I don't, I don't think you're hearing me. You understand, like, there are people that could fly in from all over the world that could sit under him. I don't care what they do and learn how to communicate. And I said, yeah, I, I, I believe that. I'm, I'm, I'm biased, but no, I mean, objectively speaking, I agree. Okay, the guy can bring it. And then as I got in the car, I thought about something. I thought about a conversation I've had many, many times with my older brother, Ed, who lives in Dallas. And that is, unless you've seen Dr. Young preach a funeral sermon, you've not seen him at his very best. No doubt about it. I mean, his funeral sermons are so good. I mean, he could preach Al Capone and John Gotti into heaven in a New York minute. I know some people want to argue with me. I, I mentioned this this summer at 9.30. Well, I've heard Dr. Young speak for 20 years, and uh, he's a great sermon. No, unless you, some of my staff members here, unless you've heard him do a funeral sermon, 
you haven't heard him, bring it. And you're probably wondering, why is that? Why is his funeral sermons better than his regular sermons? Let me give you three crystal clear reasons and you may wanna take notes. Number one is he has a limited amount of time to speak. Thank you. He has a limited amount of time to speak. So he's not shooting a shotgun, he's shooting a bullet. Number two, number two, he has one subject matter, the deceased, right? So he has one subject matter to focus on. That's also funny, some of you will get that later. The third thing is he's able to take the gospel and that person's life, how they live their life, their testimony, and combine it in such a way that it just sings. And he ends 99%, okay, 98% of all of his funeral sermons exactly like this. This is how he ends it. Whoever the deceased is, you know, whatever their name is. And right now, as Dusty is going through those pearly gates, two people caught that. As Dusty is going through those pearly gates, He is hearing the words, well done. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Our heavenly father, thank you. And it's, it's done deal, done deal. And you know, he's probably gonna outlive me, but I've been tempted to say, hey, Dad, can you do my funeral sermon? I wanna tape it. But I like the way he ends it. And that's, that's a very powerful verse. It's a, obviously, he's quoting the words of Christ. Well done. Well done. And I thought about that. You know, at the end of my life, whenever that is, that's what I wanna hear from God. I want to know that I have lived my life well, that I have understood God's will to the best I can. I've understood God's purpose for my life to the best that I can. And I've sought to live that out in my lifetime, in my generation. So I can hear those words, well done. Don't you? That's all, I, I want to hear that. Man, don't we all, man? Wouldn't that be great? At the end, when we pass, to hear those words, well done, way to go. But the question is, how, oh my goodness, it's squeaking. How do we get How do we get to well done? How do we get to well done? If we're here, how do we get to, to there? That's what I want to talk about this morning. How do we get to well done? You see, one of the reasons God sent Christ to earth was to shake things up. Shake things up, to wake people up, to help them realize what life is really all about. And one of the things that Christ did that really ticked people off, 
that got inside of their grill was he asked these penetrating questions. Socrates, who preceded Christ, did the same thing. Socrates was basically put to death because he asked too many questions because the society that he was living in didn't really want to know the truth. Take that and apply it as you would today. Jesus asked similar questions. Look what he said in Matthew 16. Matthew 16, warning us, warning us, if you would, about missing life. Here's what he said. He said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What good would it be if you just knocked it out of the park and all the goals you had in your life, you met those goals? You know, you, you found that special someone, your missing piece, your soulmate. You had the 3.5 kids. You had the job. You had the success. You have everything that you want, but you missed your soul. This deeper aspect of existence that God has made you and made me for. What a tragedy that would be to miss out on this deeper, authentic reality that God has for you and God has for me. How do we not miss it? Or to frame it like I did earlier, how do we hear the words, well done, at the end of our journey? How do we get there? Well, one of the things I recommend and someone recommended me uh, this years ago. They said, find someone who lived in a different time period. They're dead and gone now. Find them, make them your mentor, if you would. Read their books, study them, get to know them, and allow them to speak into your time period and your generation. Find someone like that. So I would challenge you to do that. One of the persons that I have found, that, that I have found very compelling, that I've tried to get to know, that I've tried to understand and allow them to speak to me is a guy by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. And Soren Kierkegaard, it would be impossible for me to exaggerate the titanic impact he has had on Western culture. Psychology, theology, philosophy, the arts, music, movies, everything has, you know, uh, the shadow of Kierkegaard lurking over them. He's the father of what's known as existentialism philosophy. Uh, that has been the corner of the realm in our universities and schools for many, many years. There's both an atheistic brand of that as well as a theistic brand of that. But Kierkegaard, trust me, is a massive titanic figure in Western civilization and a very compelling person. And one of the things that Kierkegaard wrote about so eloquently and so creatively was our deep need to understand why we are here. We were singing just a few minutes ago, that is who you are, that is who you are, God, but who am I as an existing individual and how do I connect to God's plan and purpose for my life? Here's a quote from Kierkegaard. He said, what matters is to find a purpose and to see what is really it is that God wills that I shall do. The crucial thing is to find a truth which is truth for me, to find the idea for which I am willing to live and die. 
okay? So how do we do that? Kierkegaard talked about, wrote about the, what do you call the three stages on life's way. Three stages on life's way. He also called these three spheres of existence. In other words, there are three ways of living and viewing life. As we would say today, they're different lifestyles. So the first stage or the first lifestyle, first stage of existence uh, is what he called the aesthetic, okay? It's the aesthetic way of existing. And basically we're all born in that stage. All children are aesthetic in a sense that they're, they're, they're driven by their immediate needs. What can bring us pleasure? So all little kids are aesthetic, they're aesthetes, okay? So as we grow older, sometimes we stay within this aesthetic way of existing. So if I am in this way of existing, if this is my life philosophy, basically I want to find things and people that bring me pleasure. I want pleasure and I want it now, now. I wanna increase my goods, impress others and indulge myself. Increase, impress, indulge. And I want more of it. You know, I want more parties. I want more drugs. I want more experiences. I want more of this, more of that. I don't want a long-term relationship because that's gonna interfere with my concept of freedom and my own pleasure. So that is living the aesthetic way of life. It was common in the 1800s when Kierkegaard wrote. It's pretty common today in 2020. One. <laughs> also, there's more refined people in this stage. You know, there can be the, you know, the rebellious person that's out there living and partying. Then it can be the more refined person who's living in this aesthetic way of existing. No, I want to be, I want the finest food and I want the finest wine and I want the finest this. And so, you know, it's a much more cultural way of existing. And when he describes these stages of existence, he has all these different characters that, that you know, exemplify that and these dialogues he creates to describe it. But a lot of times it's easy to get stuck in the aesthetic way of existing. And we just think that all of life is basically about me and it's basically about me avoiding pain and maximizing pleasure in my life. The problem with living purely in the aesthetic, and we never leave the aesthetic to some, some extent, but the problem of living here and staying here a while is that you find out that a lot of it, a lot of your striving, a lot of your positioning, a lot of your pleasure seeking is an attempt to avert boredom. It's an attempt to quell anxiety. And he says what this leads to is a sickness unto death known as despair. 
despair. So some people who were in this stage, this way of living, this way of existing, see the possibility of this second stage, the second way of living their life. And, and, and they, some of them make the leap, if you would, or the choice to live in the ethical stage or ex ethical sphere of existence. You say, what's that about? Well, the ethical stage of existence is all about commitment. It's about commitment. It's about discipline. It's about realizing that there's another world outside of your own selfish emotional needs and desires. There are other people out there. There's a society out there. There are rules out there. There are laws out there. There's a country out there. So during the ethical stage of existence, when people make that transition, they may say, hey, I wanna sign up and I wanna join the military. I wanna serve our country that way. Or I wanna become a policeman or a fireman or I wanna become a teacher and teach other people. Maybe you wanna get married and find a spouse. You wanna have a kid and have families and you wanna learn how to lay down your life and live for others. Perhaps you join a church and you start saying, hey, I've gotta live by life by a certain moral code. I can't stay in this aesthetic sphere forever, just living for the moment, living for the next thing, right? man, I've got to delay gratification. I've got to live more of a disciplined life. Maybe you come to church and you hear God's word and you say, I want to arrange my life according to the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount. That's the, the ethical way of existing. But what Kierkegaard says happens to us even when we adopt that ethical stage of existence and we never get out of it, so to speak, if you make that choice. But if that's all you know, he says that you're still missing it. He says because the longer you exist in the ethical stage, the more you begin to realize how you fall short of what you profess. You desire this sense of perfection, this sense of excellence, this sense of morality, but there's this yawning gap between who you are and who you should be. So the gap between who you are and who you should be produces a sense of guilt and a sense of despair. But in this sense, the guilt and despair can actually be positive because that can lead us to the highest sphere of existence where we begin to really get dialed in to God's will and God's purposes for our life, which I call the authentic way of existing. The authentic way of existing. We realize there's more to life 
than partying and pleasure, whether that's a low-grade partying or a high-grade partying. There's more to life than that. We make the choice to live in the ethical. Okay, I'm going to settle down. I'm going to get involved. I'm going to commit myself. I'm going to live for others. I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to have a morning ritual like Joe Rogan. I'm going to really kill it out there, okay? And then you realize that, whoa, I still fall way short. So you say, is there a God out there? Where is God? How do I connect with God? So we have to have an, what I call an authentic encounter with the transcendent to have this authentic way of existence. And we explain that. So a great story that I like in, in the Old Testament is Isaiah, Isaiah chapter six. And Isaiah six, you have Isaiah going into church because the king, King Uzziah had died. And so he's going into church for comfort. But he gets something else. Have you ever done that? I know I have. I come to church for some reason or some motive. And by the way, I love that. People go, you know, golly, I came to church for the wrong motives. I mean, who comes to church for the right motives anyway? I mean, I've had many people say, I just came to church because I wanted to find a, a girl. I wanted to find a guy. Okay, right? Well, I can't come to church. I stay out on Saturday night. I'll be hungover. It's at 11, 11. Do you think you're going to be the only one there who, at anyway. So we come to church. <laughs> we come to church, right? For all kinds of reasons. So Isaiah comes to church for comfort. He gets something else. He gets this, you know, this vision, if you would, of the holiness of God, that God is holy. He's transcendent. And he has this vision of these angels, these angelic creatures that are bowing down before the throne of God. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. And Isaiah, who is a prophet, okay, gets on his face. And he says, woe is me. I am undone. I am unethical. I don't have it. I have this gap. I have unclean lips and unclean thoughts, he says. And one of these angelic creatures flies to this fiery altar, pulls off a hot coal, and touches that hot coal on Isaiah's mouth. Ouch. An angelic being says, hey, your iniquities, your sins are forgiven. And then a voice cries out that Isaiah hears. It says, who shall we send? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Here am I. Send me. God, I'm open to your plan and your purposes for my life. I don't know what I'm going to do next, but I've taken that leap of faith to trust in you and to receive your forgiveness, to receive your forgiveness for that gap between who I want to be and who I am. And, and I want to be your guy. I want to be your gal. I want to follow you and become who you have designed me to be. If you look at the context 
of our verse in Matthew 16. If you look at the verse before Matthew 26 about losing your soul and all that, look at verse 25. It says, Christ says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my for me, we'll find it. You wanna find yourself? Don't go to Boulder, don't go to Europe. Go to God. He made both Boulder and Europe and it'll save your parents a lot of money. God help me. God, I've been living in this party way. You don't have to go through the ethical. Just leap over to the authentic. I don't care. Or you're here. God, I want to know you and your grace and your power. I want to become a person who has a testimony of tenacious faith. That's who I want to become. I want to become a person who has a testimony, a story of tenacious faith in the transcendent God. And when we do that, huh, we're on our way. And it's not a straight line. <laughs> Man, we, we go back, right, to the ethical. We may go back into the aesthetic, but God wakes us up and brings us back to put us on the path where we'll one day hear those words. Well done. Well done. But we've got to become these people. The kind of people who want to build a testimony of tenacious faith. So when things are difficult, when things are bleak, when things are dark, I still believe that God is the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper. That's tenacious faith. Like Martin Luther King Jr. said, right? Faith, real faith, is taking the first step when you don't see the whole staircase. That's tenacious faith. Tenacious faith is launching out for God. And Kierkegaard would say, listen, you can go back into these other spheres of existence, right? You go back into the real world. You go back into life and pleasure and all those things that God has made for us. But you go back into these spheres in a totally different way. So if you're looking for someone who's in the authentic way of existing, they're going to look pretty normal. They're not going to walk around, you know, just yee and living, you know, all giddy and happy all the time. They're just normal men and women who have given their life fully to the absolute, to the transcendent one, and are seeking to become person of tenacious faith to become and have a testimony of tenacious faith. And that's who you are. And that's who, by God's grace, we're becoming. That's my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me. It reminds me of the old story of uh, this country preacher, in a sense, old school preacher, living on the East Coast. And, and every May, kind of towards the end of May, they would have this, this uh, worship service called Graduates Day. 
And on graduate day, they'd have people stand up, say they graduated from high school, and they'd go, hey, I graduated from high school, and uh, I'm, you know, going to the military. People would clap. I'm graduated from high school and just got accepted to this college. People would clap. You know, uh, I graduated from college and now I'm going to med school. People would clap. I graduated from college and now I'm going to become a teacher. People would clap. Man, look what God's doing in our young people's life. Look, they're graduating. Look what they're doing. And about every time, every graduate Sunday, the pastor, old school guy, would get up and preach basically the exact same sermon. He would get up and say, young people, one day you're going to die. They're going to dig a hole in the ground, put you in it, shovel dirt in your face, and go back to the church and eat potato salad. And when you die, they're going to say one or two things about you. They're going to say you were either living for a title or a testimony. And this old boy would go through the entire Bible with that frame, title, testimony. He'd start off, he'd go, Pharaoh had a title, but Moses had a testimony. Nebuchadnezzar had a title, but Daniel had a testimony. Jezebel had a title, but Elijah had a testimony. Finally makes his way to the New Testament. Herod had a title, but John the Baptist had a testimony. Nero had a title, but Peter had a testimony. Agrippa had a title, but Paul had a testimony. And he keeps going back, title, testimony, title, testimony, title, testimony, until everybody's about worn out. And finally, at the end of his message, he screams at the top of his lungs, Pilate, Pilate, Pilate had a title, but my Jesus had a testimony. Death and taxes, title, or testimony. 